Welcome to Our Hen House. This is Jasmine Singer. This is Marianne Sullivan. And we're so happy you're joining us this week. Our interview is about a hugely important topic that unbelievably is still not getting enough attention in spite of the fact that it is at the root of the pandemic. Angela Grimes, who is Born Free USA's CEO, will be talking to us about the staggeringly large global trade in wild animals, a subject that has become even more salient because of the origins of COVID-19 in a wild animal market. It is pretty unbelievable, isn't it? Yeah. Like, like we've known this for a long time that, you know, we don't know for absolute certain, but that that COVID almost certainly started in this wild animal market in Wuhan. And still people just don't think we're supposed to do anything about this. It staggers my mind. So uh, I was really happy to have a chance to talk to Angela Grimes about it, who really knows a lot about about this issue and other issues involving wild animals. We didn't just talk about that. And this week on the Flock Bonus segment, I'll be continuing the conversation with Angela. And as always, if you're a Flock member, you will get a link to the bonus segment in your email on the Tuesday after the podcast goes up. And you can always find it on the Flock Facebook group. If you are not a member of the Flock and you can afford it, you can join for $10 a month at ourhenhouse.org slash donate. We are also still doing our Flock Friday Zoom calls on Fridays at 4 p.m. Eastern. So I hope if you're in the Flock, you join us because sometimes we have guests and sometimes we just have really cool conversations. And I am uh, really excited about the one that just passed by the time this airs, which was all about love and activism and love and veganism. And how do you cohabitate with someone you love, but who might be doing something you don't love? So that's just a little bit of a, a peephole into the type of uh, conversations we're having, but we're also having recent and former guests on the show, including the upcoming guest, Victoria Moran, who will be discussing veganism and spirituality. And we we also greatly enjoy getting suggestions from flock members of what is resonating with you about the show and what's not. So check it out on the flock Facebook group. Check there for updates or email us at info at ourhenhouse.org. So before we get to the interview, as I suspected, last week's episode with New York State Senator Jabari Brisport was very popular. I loved this interview. I'm hoping that you've had a chance to listen. We also had some bonus content, which was super cool for our flock. And I thought it was particularly interesting that Senator Brisport was brought on to the New York Senate Agriculture Committee recently. I loved chatting with him about that and about how much the dairy industry hates his guts. And th he really thinks that, you know, we can we can do it. We can get rid of dairy in New York. Mm -hmm. And for those of you around the country who think New York is just a city, no, it's a really big state. <laughs> and there's, it's just such a dairy-focused state. Mm -hmm. And actually, this past week, uh, on the more federal level, we learned that Cory Booker has also joined an ag committee, which is kind of blowing my mind a little bit. Yeah, no, I, I would really like to hear him talk about this a bit because this is exciting that Cory Booker, uh, you know, of course, uh, the senator from New Jersey who is a passionate and outspoken vegan, and he wanted to be on the Agriculture Committee, and now he is. Like, what's that all about? I'm so excited. And I noticed on Twitter, somebody had posted about it, and somebody else asked a question about, why would a New Jersey senator, hardly an ag state, want to be on on the Agriculture Committee. What's going on here? And somebody responded, well, actually, New Jersey actually has a lot of agriculture. It, it is like the third biggest industry in New Jersey. 
which people don't know about. But, you know, they don't they think New Jersey is just a suburb. <laughs> New York is not just a city and New Jersey is not just a suburb. The In mo- fact, New Jersey has the city and New York has suburbs. Thank you for those salutes to our to our state, <laughs> to our home states. Somebody else responded to this question about why he would want to be on the ag committee is so that he could impose vegan world order, which, you know, I hope right. he, I hope he does. But I doubt he's going to be able to pull that off. But, you know, isn't the real answer that agriculture does not just affect people who work in agriculture. It affects everybody who eats like this is such a crazy attitude that agriculture committees are just supposed to be made up of people who are tied to the very industry that they are legislating about. Mm -hmm. It's like the worst idea about government I've ever heard. So I am super excited that Cory Booker wanted to be on this committee, is on this committee. You know, he's got a lot of legislation. I mean, particularly his big factory farming bill, which doesn't get rid of it all, but it makes a huge step forward. If we could pass that, that would be a big step forward. So I'm pretty excited about it. Switching gears, I've been making my way through Netflix like any good quarantiner. And I recently was watching a show called Blown Away, which is about a glass blowing competition. It's like a reality show. You actually made me watch like the first three episodes and I was not interested at all. No, I I got into it. I I actually watched both seasons that exist. So it's like these glass people were tedious. Well, like (laughs) it's like these these world renowned glass blowers all doing a challenge and making, you know, whatever the challenge is that day. Anyway, so there was this one person on the first season and this is a spoiler alert. So if you're going to watch it, I'm about to say who wins. Don't watch it. It's stupid. Okay, I actually found it really interesting. But apparently, like a lot of other industries, the glass blowing industry is dominated by men. But there was this there were a couple of women on it. And again, spoiler alert here, one of the women won the season on the first season. And her name is uh, Deborah Cheresco. And she is apparently very prominent. And also, I was really excited because she's a lesbian. So not only was a woman winning, but this like woman who happens to be a lesbian with this kind of really quirky energy. We are getting to a point here. Okay. So I just, I, you know, then I watched the second season and I, I was looking up Deborah on Instagram because I thought that her art was really cool. But something about the last episode, the finale, really bothered me. Like, I, I think I dreamt about it the other night, actually. So the, the final the final kind of challenge that the artists have is to fill up a whole gallery with something that is up to them. Like, but it has to have a common theme. And her theme was to explore gender and do so through an art exhibit that had like giant meat and egg products everywhere, all made of glass. But there were like these sausage links and uh, these kind of pieces of animals that people eat, like thighs and and cold cuts. And and then there was this giant like egg sort of looked like a soft boiled egg draped over a platform and she was kind of making the point that the the meat represented masculinity and the egg represented femininity and she was kind of making the the egg bigger than the meat to make the point of like the femininity that needs to be bigger than the masculinity it's possible i'm not giving you the best analysis of this because oftentimes i don't analyze art the way that i think i'm supposed to whatever that means but in in any case she was clearly using animal products as a metaphor. I mean, that that's her whole shtick. So then I went onto her Instagram 
And I realized that this is something she does very, very, very frequently. In fact, one of the latest pieces she had was like called Poultry, and it was a big glass representation of a dead chicken. And again, she uses a lot of this to explore gender, and she thinks she's doing so in a very groundbreaking way. And though I am usually interested in the exploration of gender, especially within the arts, I am like the thing that bothered me. I'm having a hard time articulating it. So maybe you can help me, Marianne. But the thing that bothered me was like, you know, artists, animals are not a fucking metaphor and animals don't need to be a metaphor in art either. I I just think it's like, oh, it's so deep to stare at this glass egg and this glass meat and talk about gender because art is sort of culturally changing us and it's opening our minds. But like, what about the actual absent referent, as Carol Adams would say, and the fact that like, this is a representative of somebody who used to actually exist and have a family and for that matter, have a, you know, a gender expression as well. I am just kind of tired of animals as metaphors and as animals in art to be used simply for exploitation. Yeah, it's not quite as bad as as artists we've spoken about in the past who use actual animal bodies or actual living animals as part of their art materials and I guess are using them as metaphors for something else. I mean, you know, it's hard for me to talk about this just from the animal point of view because I didn't like the show. I don't really like art. I think most of it's stupid. And I thought this was stupid. All right, don't write to me. I'm sorry. But there is something particularly horrifying about this. The fact that we do this to these animals and then we act like they're that it, they're just ideas. They're they're ideas in which we can explore our own fucking selves. That's all we're ever interested in is our own fucking selves and our gender issues and 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 whatever. Like just if if you want to talk about people, talk about people. If you want to blow glass about people, mm-hmm. blow it about people. Don't these are dead animals that you are turning into a story that is not about them. And I think it's disgusting. I'm glad I didn't watch the show. Well, okay. I do want to say also the second season, also more spoiler alerts here. The second season was won by an artist named Elliot Walker. And I went to his Instagram page, Elliot Walker Glass Art. And I happened to notice that a lot of the art that he makes is actually fruit and vegetables. And I don't think he's doing something like exploring gender roles. I actually think he's just, uh, he thinks that they're beautiful. And like, I'm looking at one right now of an avocado bowl, which is really cool. And actually, I kind of want this. But it's, you know, like I'm 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 extremely bummed that it was the lesbian who had the the meat. But I'm jazzed, as it were, about the fact that Elliot Walker is super into the fruit towers and the vegetables and it's quite gorgeous. Yeah, but does he use I mean, I think he like it's almost like craft. He's he I guess glass blowing can be either art or craft. And making beautiful things I think is a wonderful thing to do. Making the making these beautiful sculptures that just look like fruits and and give us pleasure to look at them. I'm not saying that I don't like that. I just mean like this whole like imbuing imbuing your work with meanings that uh just I don't know, they just don't talk to me at all. But better you than me. Should we also talk about this story that I read because I I wanted to bring it up this week as well. A different topic, but it just really struck me. And it's this story and I think it makes an excellent point that Plant-based diets are crucial to saving wildlife. It was this big report that came out, a UN-backed report. There's an article about it in The Guardian. 
And the report was by Chatham House, which is the think tank. And they're making the point that, which, you know, you all know, animal agriculture, cheap food, cheap animal food is is the cause of environmental devastation, enormous waste, the loss of farmland that could be used to, to grow other kinds of foods, climate change, you know, all of the problems. And that this is not just, you know, causing harm to people. It's causing, I mean, we all know this, causing harm to wild animals. We're going to lose all these wild animals. And, you know, this got a lot of play. I saw it in a lot of places and it just made me wonder. Like, I think it's good, you know, I mean, bring attention to this. I mean, I don't think it's good that it's happening, but I think it's good that they're bringing attention to it. But what is it with people that they they think this is a big deal, which it is, that we're losing all these wild animals. And it never seems to enter their mind that we shouldn't be doing this to pigs either. It, it's wrong to kill a pig because it might cause the reduction in the number of giraffes. I don't like, like what is wrong with people? It just struck me as, as such an odd way of looking at this. But, you know, I'm all for it because, because people do care about wild animals and companion animals. Uh, I'm just throwing companion animals in there, not relevant to this situation. But those are the two animals that they seem to care about. And so if we can, you know, hold them up as poster childs for why you shouldn't torture pigs. Okay. But, you know, why can't people just understand that you shouldn't torture pigs? Yeah, it's a hard it's a hard one. You know, I mean, this kind of goes to the cognitive dissonance that we discuss a lot on the show, but it is particularly unnerving. It undoes me the most when people have a consciousness about a particular exploited animal group that isn't food animals, quote unquote food animals and like, why draw the line there? I mean, you know, like when we're looking at life from a speciesist perspective and you're talking about like these really great ambassadors for various types of human rights and it's very frustrating for animal activists because it's like, why draw a line there? But w- w- similarly, it's it's difficult to wrap your head around animal activists who don't care about people. But, you know, I don't know many of those, despite what the rumors say. In any case, when you're talking about speciesism and you're actually talking about a non-human animal to begin with, then that line becomes even fuzzier. Like, why are we talking about the rights of wild animals and not of farmed animals? I don't understand. Well, sadly, I think it's probably because people think, oh, but I really wanted to go on a safari and see the elephants (laughs) in the wild someday, and now I won't be able to. It's all about me. Yeah, that's totally true. All right. Well, on that note, I mean, that's actually a pretty interesting note to transition to chat with our guest today. The interview this week is with Angela Grimes, as we mentioned. Angela is Born for USA's chief executive officer. She has more than 25 years of experience in the nonprofit sector, inspired by observing wildlife freely in their jungle homes while volunteering for Sea Turtle Project in Costa Rica. Angela moved from arts administration. Oh, she might have uh, an opinion about blown away. She moved from arts administration to wildlife protection where she has served in senior and executive level positions since 2004. Marianne's interview with Angela Grimes is coming up right after this. Greetings, everybody. This is Jasmine Singer, and I wanted to make sure you knew about my new book, The Veg News Guide to Being a Fabulous Vegan. Look good, feel good, and do good in 30 days. Want to be fabulous? Go vegan. Maybe you're interested in it for the food, maybe it's the animals, or maybe climate change has got you thinking. Whatever your reason, maybe you don't quite know where to start. After all, doesn't going vegan mean you have to give up tasty snacks and cool shoes and a sense of humor in your leather couch? Nope, nope, no way, and well, 
eventually. Covering everything from nutrition, you will get enough protein, promise, to dating, vegans have better sex, it's true. To fitness, you want to lift a car over your head? Sure. I am joining with the team at Veg News to bust all the myths and giving you all the facts about a plant-based lifestyle. With 30 easy recipes to get you started, the Veg News Guide to Being a Fabulous Vegan will help you adopt a vegan lifestyle that's better for you, the animals, and the planet. And what's more fabulous than that? Get your copy today wherever books are sold or go to jasminesinger.com slash fabulous. Remember, there's no E on Jasmine. It's J-A-S-M-I-N-S-I-N-G-E-R dot com slash fabulous. The Veg News Guide to Being a Fabulous Vegan. Welcome to our hen house, Angela. Thank you, Marianne. It's great to talk to you. It is great to talk to you because I am actually old enough to remember Born Free the movie and Born Free the song. <laughs> and so, and, and also what a huge impact both of them had. But my guess is that many of our listeners are not as old as I am and may not be aware of the origins of Born Free. So before we get into all the issues, and of course, we're particularly going to focus on the connections between the wildlife trade and pandemics. But, you know, we'll cover some of the other issues as well. But can we just start by telling our audience a little bit about how Born Free started? Yeah, Born Free was started by Virginia McKenna, her late husband, Bill Travers, and their son, Will Travers. And Virginia McKenna and Bill Travers were the stars of the movie Born Free that you had just mentioned, uh, which told the real life story of an orphaned lioness who was rehabilitated and returned back to the wild. Uh, the couple did another film called An Elephant Called Slowly, where they had worked with a baby elephant who had been torn from her mother and subsequently sent to the London Zoo. They saw what had happened and how the animals were impacted by being removed from the wild and placed in captivity, and they decided to act and and make a change for animals so that they wouldn't have to live in, you know, in, in terrible conditions and that they were allowed to live in the wild where they belong. And 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 if you recall near the end of the, the film, Virginia McKenna says she was born free. And she deserves to live free. And that's really at the heart of what we do. Yeah, it, it really is a lovely story. You know, you hear a lot of actors uh, giving giving a lot of lip service to, <laughs> to things, uh, but they really set out to do something. So I know it started, I believe it started in the UK, though doing work all over the world. But how long have you been operating in the U.S.? Yes. The organization started in the 1980s in the UK, and in 2002, we formed Born Free USA in the United States to bring that message, you know, over here to North America. And again, before we get into the interviews, just to give us uh, people a big picture, I think it's really important to note that the, your, your primate sanctuary, because that is, you know, a huge feature of the work that you do. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Yes, we have a sanctuary for rescued monkeys in South Texas. There are more than 400 monkeys living there, a number of species, and they've come from the pet trade. They've been retired or rescued from laboratory research, from roadside zoos, uh, really horrible conditions. What we do is give them a second chance. The sanctuary is their home. We're not open to the public. We don't give tours. Uh, it is simply the monkeys' homes, and we we care for them for the remainder of their lives. Yeah, you know, there's so much focus, uh, rightly so, on chimpanzees and research. 
And people just seem to forget the enormous number of, of monkeys, and not just in research, but in the pet trade. They're, they are, I, I think they're sometimes forgotten animals. They are. And, you know, in the pet trade, like, you know, can also happen with cats or dogs or, or bunnies. People get these cute little baby animals. And when they grow up to adults, unlike a dog, a monkey becomes dangerous and can harm, you know, adults and children. And then people realize the mistake that they've made. And, and there has to be a place for those animals to go because the alternative is death, frankly. And uh, and that's why organizations like Born Free and our Primate Sanctuary and any others that, that offer sanctuary to, you know, to animals in need are so very important. Yeah, that's another tragedy. Of course, uh, as I mentioned, what we really want to get into are the issues. And I know Born Free has a lot of campaigns focusing on various kinds of policy work. But as I mentioned, one of the ones we had planned on focusing on in particular is the wildlife trade for obvious reasons and also the connections to pandemics for obvious reasons. And so let's just start out with, I, I you know, I've asked this question of other people and, but the answer always staggers me. How big is the wildlife trade? The wildlife trade is a multi-billion dollar industry. It funds criminal enterprises. It, fu it funds a number of really unsavory and illegal activities around the world. It, it, it crosses through continents. And, and it's really, it's something that needs to be fought on a number of levels, you know, really on the supply side, in law enforcement, in customs, but also on the demand side. The less people want to consume products, then, you know, the, the fewer animals that will be killed, the fewer dollars being traded back and forth. Yeah, and this is a question that I don't know whether you can answer. I don't know whether anybody can answer it, but I mean, I understand that some of this involves food. You know, we'll be talking about Wuhan and the, the, the use of wild animals for food. And then there's Chinese medicine or Asian medicine. I guess it's not just Chinese. So those are kind of animals as products, which is something we're kind of familiar with. But for an awful lot of these wild animals, like it's just some weird desire that people have to own these animals. Do, do you understand this? Like, what is this impulse? Why can't they just get a dog? Like, what is it? <laughs> well, exactly. Why, why can't they just get a dog? But there's, there's a status, you know. For example, a number of cheetahs are coming out of, of Africa going, you know, destined to the Middle East to be pets. You know, there's, there's this vanity status symbol about walking down the street with your pet cheetah. I, and you see the same thing here in, in the United States. It's really about ego. There's something, you know, I have a pet who's different, so look at me. What isn't being considered, of course, it's look at me, the human, not look at that animal who is suffering. Yeah, it, it's like, I, I do think that's part of it, but I also, you know, some of these animals have to be kept secret, so it's, it's hard to show off, like, uh, with something that you have to keep a secret. Uh, you know, it just seems, I, I almost wonder sometimes whether it's like people feel, well, I guess it's a, a sense of power, you know, that you can have this power over this animal who is obviously more powerful than you are in some ways. 
though I, I don't even know whether that all covers it. It's just, I just find it the weirdest thing because it's so much work, isn't it, to take care of these animals? It is. And, and you can't properly care for an animal and give them everything that they need in a home. And yes, kept secret or at least hidden from law enforcement because a number of states don't allow certain animals to be kept as pets. You imagine you know, say there's a real life example was a home in Pennsylvania that firefighters went into and and they walked in and found a number of alligators in there that were yeah. not supposed to be kept. You know, you're, you're putting yourself, you're putting the public, you know, and you're putting in, in that case, you know, important first responders at risk. Yeah, I remember this story. I don't know whether you remember this one. It was from a while back. It was in it was in Manhattan. And this guy went into a, an emergency room and he, he was wounded and he said it was a pit bull had bitten him. And um, they, they ended up going to his, his apartment in uptown Manhattan and finding a tiger there and I think an alligator. Like, it's insane. <laughs> it's just insane. And it also brings up, you know, one of my, one of my favorite causes is that everything gets blamed on the pit bulls. You know, <laughs> guy gets bitten by his tiger and he says it's a pit bull. It's just, it's the craziest thing I find it. But of course, that's not the main thing that is driving interest right now. It is, as I mentioned before, the COVID-19, the connection to pandemics. And and we know that COVID-19 originated with wild animals kept largely for food. And we've all heard about the market in Wuhan, obviously, and, and the probable connection with bats. They don't, they still don't seem to have pinned it down. And maybe you can tell me more about that. So can you talk a little bit about these markets? Where are they? And who are the animals who are either dead or alive within them? These markets exist all over the world. They don't exist just in China or Asia. They're here in the United States as well. And I think a lot of folks learned a, a new word this this year or last year, uh, wet markets. And they're not just markets that are animals being slaughtered or, or available for purchase to eat. There are also animals there that are for ceremonial, religious purposes, ornamental purposes. So really what you're dealing with is any sort of market where there are live animals or animals being killed or recently killed, you have the the, the, the propensity for transmission of disease, you know, uh, spray of blood, you know, all of any sorts of factors that could could transmit disease. So I think it's important to remember we're not just talking about animals consumed for food. Uh, yeah, I actually, I mean, I thought that most of the issue, at least in Wuhan, was for food, but I just didn't, I didn't realize that. I think that uh, food seemed to be the the main driver for me. I know in Chinese culture, they do eat a lot of variety of animals, but that makes sense that they would be for, for other purposes as well. Why are these so dangerous when it comes to viruses? How do, how do the viruses get from the animals to humans? They can be transmitted any number of ways, the same ways that we would, that Viruses, diseases can be transmitted from human to human. It can be respiratory. It can be through a, you know, a fluid exchange. It could be, you know, somehow you have a cut on your finger. You touch something that has, you know, and, you know, that's infected really any, any number of ways. It's just, it's basic biology. I think I've heard, and you can tell me whether this is true or not, that one of the one of the really big problems is that there are so many different species that that kind of creates this perfect this perfect uh, atmosphere for the viruses to mutate. Is that right? 
Yeah, there are a number of species that that can be found in these wet markets, and and really the the, the largest factor is the the proximity of humans to these animals. You know, there's you know walking through the woods or you know the savanna in Africa. And, you know, these animals may be living there in a natural habitat. You don't have the, the same kind of risk that you have when you're walking through such a highly concentrated, dense area where you're surrounded with, with so many different species and, and simply the sheer numbers. My understanding is that a lot of these animals, at least in China, or maybe it was specifically I was reading about Wuhan, are bred, not captured, which only makes sense. That would be a lot easier. How does that work? And does that have implications for how likely they are to incubate diseases? Uh, animals in these markets can be both bred for purpose as well as captured from the wild. I do not have any sort of, I, I don't know if there is a difference between wild versus captive bred and and a virus connection. Okay. Uh, so I assume that the conditions in which they're bred are also horrible. So so that was a piece of it that I didn't really understand until I started reading about it. Yeah. So in in the case when you are captive breeding, there you know you have hundreds and hundreds of animals in very tight quarters. So certainly that can be a factor in that you're just you're compressing a number of animals into a very small space that you know would would possibly lead to a higher transmission. Yeah, that makes uh, like as in factory farms that the exactly the it's just creating it's like creating a laboratory for viruses to grow. Certainly, I mean, and we think about that, at, you know, just with the social distancing and and our rules about not gathering to limit the spread of the virus amongst humans. You know, it's that's being not being you know several hundred people in a crowded theater makes a difference in terms of that with you know with humans. So you know, it would it would prove that or would go to show that that same thing could be applied to animals as well. Yeah, that makes total sense. So this is not, I mean, we're talking about COVID-19 because, well, as I said, for obvious reasons, but this is certainly not just a COVID-19 problem, is it? There have been many other disease outbreaks, just not as huge that have been connected to wild animals. There have been, and there have been outbreaks, and then there are also ongoing risks. So you think about a very large species used in the pet trade or a group classification is are reptiles. So, you know, people have iguanas, uh, people keep other lizards in, in their homes as pets. And those animals can, can carry and transmit salmonella. You know, it, there are any, any number of diseases out there and, and which is why simply the wild animals belong in the wild. They don't belong in our homes, on our dinner plates, you know, hanging in markets, hanging on our walls. We really, it's it's in everyone's best interest to let them live in the wild and, and, and just stay clear. So, you know, I think by now, this isn't really big news to people that there is a connection between wild markets and COVID. Though I'm not sure that even any of the government or authorities have have pinned it down and said this is definitely where it came from. It always seems to be like probable or likely, uh, which you would think, given what's going on, they would have made a bigger effort to, to pin it down. But anyway, you would also think there would be this like incredible outrage and demands that these markets be shut down, and people like you are making that case. But I am not seeing a widespread demand. I am seeing kind of widespread awareness. Most people seem to. Th- 
to understand it. They just don't do anything about it. Am I wrong? And and if I'm not wrong, if I'm right, if you agree, what is that about? What like why would people not be more up in arms about this? You know, I, I think a lot of that can come from, you know, simply if it's not if it's not in your own backyard, you're less concerned about something. And and there are wet markets here in the United States, but it's certainly not when, you know, when we go to the grocery store, we go to the, the farmer's market even, it's not the same as, you know, say the pictures that we saw of wet markets in Wuhan. So it's, it's maybe not seeming as important here, you know, if it's not affecting your daily life but it is you know and that's and that's what people need to realize it does affect us you know i mean goodness we you know we're still in the midst of a pandemic it it certainly has affected us but it's also you know in terms of taking action i i think there's just a lot going on in the world right now but the other the other important factor is that we in order to really truly stop this we have to change laws and we have to change international policy and and trade treaties. Yeah, I would I imagine almost everything to do with wild animals is is international in some scope. There has been some pro- I mean China has has taken some steps regarding wild markets, haven't they? They have, absolutely. And and you are seeing quite a bit of discussion on a global stage about that. Several countries are either enacting or or discussing bans on these kinds of markets to you know, to to help prevent future pandemics like this. We're also looking at, you know, how we can stop the trade in countries, in the supply countries, and disrupt the chain so that these these animals don't even enter the system to begin with. So, uh, yeah, I know you work on other issues as well as wild markets. And from what you're saying, a lot of them are intertwined. But what would you identify right now as the most important threats to wild animals? Right now, the most important threat, you know, we're, we're facing an extinction crisis. And really, that can come down to the loss of habitat and human encroachment. You know, we are expanding as humans and taking over the territory of animals. So I think habitat protection and and conservation of, of their lands is one of the most critical aspects for us to ensure a future for wildlife. And what is the Global Nature Recovery Investment Initiative? That is an initiative that, that Born Free has developed. And we are looking at really a, a massive investment in nature and, and valuing nature in the same way that on, on a global stage, valuing it the same way that we would value, you know, defense, that we value human health. You know, when we talk about the, the ways that the, you know, leading, you know, are, are the most developed and, and wealthier countries are investing in other countries that are critical habitats. You know, we're, we want to make sure that nature is a priority. So what are the incentives? I, this is focused on governments and international bodies. What are the incentives? I mean, you know, for you and I and probably most of our listeners, just saving the animals is enough. But do you also try to sell this on some of the implications for humans for living in a world where wild animals are are disappearing? 
Absolutely. It's uh, the existence of wild animals. It's not just to have, you know, someone pretty to look at, you know, or, or say, you know, protecting a habitat and just because we like trees. This has serious implications on human health. We need our wildlands. We need a, a world, you know, where nature exists and there are open spaces simply for the health of, of the human population. What about, it seems to me that this work must be intensely complicated by climate change and the uncertainty of of what's going to happen to various habitats. Is that a huge issue? Uh, yes, absolutely. You know, that's one of climate change is another leading factor in what we're facing you know, for the future. So we, we really have to think about all of nature and and how we are going to try to safeguard and even reverse some of the damage that's already been done if we want to have a, a healthy, thriving ecosystem. Do you do you have hope that there's still like that we can we can in any realistic way save any any semblance of the wild? I do have hope. Uh, there is a lot of hope out there, and and while you know some things can can seem dire or it can seem like it's taking too long or or very long or maybe it won't happen. I mean, it does happen incrementally. Change does happen slowly. But if you think about you know say the the view of animals for fur and fashion, it fifty years ago was a much different landscape on that. You know, people wore fur, it was a status symbol, it was it was just generally accepted. Today it's not generally accepted. The the tide has turned, public opinion has changed. I think we are seeing things, you know, that certain things, you know, and actions trophy hunting is less and less societally acceptable. And that's that's really where the change is going to happen. We're talking about it more. We are making changes and and we do have hope for the future. What issues is specific I, I know you or the the idea of Born Free basically originated in relationship to Africa. And I know you do a lot of work in Africa. What kind of work do you do there? Born Free USA has a program in West and Central Africa that is training and providing support to law enforcement and customs officials. So we have a, a for example, a new app that we developed called Wild Scan. Uh, it's a free mobile phone app that helps customs officials identify illegally traded species and their parts so that you know, they can come combat the, the crime and have the, the tools that they need to do that. That app alone and the training that we provided has resulted in hundreds of kilos of pangolins or sharks, shark fins being confiscated that didn't make it then into the supply chain and the food chain for shark fin soup. So, you know, there is a real impact that, that's coming out of the work that we're doing there. Training judges and prosecutors on how to prosecute wildlife crimes so that the criminals can be put in jail. What are the so poaching obviously is 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 one of the main issues that you focus on. What are the main drivers for poaching? In I guess in Africa specifically when we're talking about the you know the 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 incredible animals of Africa. Sure. Uh poaching itself, you know, is the you know the individual going out to to uh, kill an animal to feed their family that's not the problem. Uh, the the problem are the large synd crime syndicates that are killing in in numbers to you know 
shooting down and gunning down elephants for their ivory rhinos for their horn to then sell and and put money in their coffers. The driver of this is is money. It's uh, it, as as they say, the root of all evil. <laughs> Is it mostly uh, ivory? Is it still mostly ivory, even in spite of all the work that's been done? Uh, yes, you know, you you do see quite a bit in ivory, but you know, there there are trade in in other other species as well. Uh, the not so much poaching, but the you know the the trade in birds. You know, we don't talk as much about you know how birds are captured from the wild and and bred you know to go into the pet trade. You know, millions and millions of them every year. What makes the news is one dentist killing one lion, and certainly that was horrific and that brought a lot of attention. But you know, it's the numbers of other, say, less charismatic species are staggering. And and they all, whether, whether you're a big, beautiful lion or elephant or a, a pangolin that, you know, maybe nobody has heard of, they all need the, the same kind of protection. Is there, is there a lot of poaching of, of unusual animals for the, the Asian medicine business? Is that a big driver? Yes. I mean, certainly that is the, for any sort of Asian, you know, Eastern traditional medicine uh, will use, you know, tiger teeth and bones. They will use pangolin scales, which are simply keratin, the same thing as our fingernails. You know, so yes, that is a large driver of of any number of types of products and, and parts of animals to be used. And, you know, and that is is largely a, a tradition. It's historic, but with very little scientific evidence that, you know, these products actually uh, help or cure. So what other issues do you, I, I've, I've, I've talked about the work you do in, um, in poaching and the wildlife trade, and we've talked about wild markets. What other issues do you focus on? Uh, sure. Here in the United States, we uh, also focus on trapping. And specifically in trapping on public land, such as our National Wildlife Refuges, which you would think by by its name, the National Wildlife Refuge System, that these would be safe places. But unfortunately, trapping is allowed. And, you know, and people, you know, or their companion animals, you know, hiking through these with their dogs can become victims, you know, to to these traps. Not It's not just the the targeted animals can it can happen really to anyone we're also working to to fight the fur trade as i mentioned a little bit ago and working to to strengthen and strengthen the endangered species act as well as fight against some of the rollbacks that we have seen over the last several years of protections for animals we're looking at at limiting and shutting down the import of trophies into the United States. You know, we, we think about trophy hunting being an African issue. It's really a U.S. issue because Americans are responsible for the vast majority of trophies being taken out of Africa and imported into the United States. So if we simply disallow the import of trophies here within our borders, we can solve a, a a big problem for animals in Africa. Do you have hope with the new administration that things are going to get a little bit more open in Washington to protecting animals? 
I, I do. I have a great deal of hope that we will be able to make some advancements in the next four years. That's not to say that it's it's going to be easy. Certainly, the the president has a lot on his plate uh, moving into. <laughs> um, and you know what what I do I think is very important is I I don't think that we are going to be fighting against rollbacks. You know, I think that I, I'm hopeful that what we're going to be looking at is is starting to make progress as opposed to trying to prevent, you know, lessening of protections. Yeah, that that at least is 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 a positive that there will be so much negative. I mean, democratic politicians have, you know, they're not they're not as good as you would want them to be. That's for sure. They they. So there are no guarantees here, but there does seem to be at least some potential openings. And as you said, maybe not so many rollbacks. I, I just wanted to go back because you had mentioned briefly that you you were also active in, in fighting the fur trade. And I'm just wondering, do you think this, this connection between mink and COVID, you know, that mink have been shown to, I believe, not only contract it, but to but to spread it, do you think that's going to have a big impact on fur farms and and that whole part of the fur trade? It already has had a huge impact on on the fur industry. I mean, there were, you know, the the largest fur farms in Denmark and Poland that are supplying a great deal of the industry's fur have been closed down. You know, in Europe has made amazing changes in in shutting down for factory fur farming uh, in Europe the the outbreak of of covid within minks and and on these farms certainly accelerated that and has really had a you know I, I mean unfortunately millions of, of minks were were killed lost their lives but it's accelerated and led to the closing of these kind of fur farms I mean the the fur industry is severely crippled right now you know and we have we have fur farms here in the United States I, the we've had outbreaks in Utah and in Wisconsin so uh, it's very much right here on our shores as well and while the US has been much slower and reticent to react to that. I, I do think that it's it's going to be hard to overlook the the kinds of disease implications and and human health. You know, I mean, it really always comes back down to, you know, that nature that the health of nature is so very linked to the health of the human population. Yeah, and it really does highlight something that. I was noting earlier in our conversation, even though a great deal of your work does have to do with protecting animals in the wild, a lot of the really huge problems for wild animals these days is is not in the wild. It's that they're being brought together either in these wet markets or raised for food or raised for fur. And, and that is not protecting the wild. It's just protecting these animals who have been extracted from the wild and then and then artificially bred it's it's just so awful yeah absolutely you have you know i mean there are two sides to this there is the protecting habitat protecting species in the wild you know really tradition traditional you know quote conservation as people define it but then you know we born free also looks at the the animals who who are in captivity or you know are possibly you know 
could possibly be bred, you know, for future captivity. So there's there's a lot more to just than just protecting animals in the wild. We need to stop things like the pet trade, uh, stop the use of animals for for entertainment, traveling shows, you know, and kept in captivity in roadside zoos and you know and little like drive through theme parks and those sorts of places. There's just uh, it's it's really maddening to think all of the numbers uh, number of ways that that humans can find to exploit animals in this world and and that's really what we're fighting we're fighting against you know any all a number of different ways that we choose to exploit or use animals as opposed to just simply letting them be yeah it's 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 awful and the word wild really loses its meaning so so many of these animals are not wild. They should be, but they're not. Yeah, it's huge problems. And I'm, I'm glad a lot of organizations are working on them. And I'm hoping that, you know, maybe all of the problems we're going through in the world right now will, will have an impact on on making us a little bit more aware. And I hope it's not too late. And But thank you for, for telling us all about your work on our hen house. It's really been, it's really been interesting. And thank you for everything you do. Thank you, Marianne. It was great to talk to you today. If you like what you're listening to, and I hope you do, then please consider taking a minute out of your day today to leave us a friendly review. You can do it on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify or Stitcher or on Facebook or wherever you listen to podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. The more we get out there, the more our hen house will be in front of people's eyeballs when they're putting in search terms in their podcasts and the more we could join forces together to elevate the voices of the animals and change the world for them. So thank you so much in advance for leaving us a friendly review. Anxieties are rising. Our first story this week in our ongoing effort to show that the meat industry doesn't, not only is panicking, but has no idea what to do about it. It's from meetingplace.com. GM says EV by 2035, a herald for meat and poultry. Well, that sounds like a promising headline. This is from the Meet Your Markets column by Matt Graves. And he is heralding the, uh, the, the decision by General Motors to take all of its new vehicles electric by 2035. And he, he wonders whether he thinks it's absolutely great. He is a climate change believer. He writes about it frequently. Is GM's announcement, he says, a clarion call for the meat and poultry industry? In my view, we too must set a date certain in our future when we will no longer produce meat and poultry in a way that contributes to greenhouse gases and then intrepidly go forth to achieve it. Now, think about what he's talking about. Like GM is totally changing the product that it's producing in order to reduce greenhouse gases. So maybe the meat industry could do that. Maybe that's what he's thinking about, that it could stop producing meat from from methane-producing animals and start producing meat from, from plants or from cell-based agriculture. The overwhelming evidence, he says, of climate change is clear and needs to be addressed. Well, good for you. How can we make such a change and what will it look like? First, we must factually discredit the climate change deniers. Well, that's a good first step. But then what should we go on to say? Scientists and in our industry, we have some of the best. Well, (laughs) all right, whatever. 
must develop different feeding regimens or supplements for ruminants to address the methane belches. Uh, maybe that's not going to do it, Mac. Oh, my God. You may say that this cannot be done. Actually, that is just what I just said. Because the ruminant process of turning cellulose into edible protein demands a four-chambered stomach, and the biology inherent in it will not allow a gasless gut. It also, of course, requires a sentient, feeling, emotional creature who suffers. But, you know, I digress. We are better than to accept that excuse. Well, you know, it may not be just an excuse, Mac. It may actually be a fact. Oh, all right. That's his solution. Not a word about other types of meat. Iowa House Speaker calls factory farm moratorium a non-starter. This is from the Gazette. That's an Iowa paper, and I, I I apologize. I don't know exactly where in Iowa it is from. Oh, it's Des Moines. All right. This is about this uh, project, which I've seen popping up uh, around around the country, of legislative proposals being made to establish statewide moratoriums on on factory farms. And they use the term factory farms, which I think is really, really nice. So, and they're not saying, you know, that anybody has to go out of business. They're not closing anything down. They just, you know, let's let's put a stop to new ones. However, this has uh, the Iowa House Speaker pretty upset. His name is Pat Grassley. And he says that this, uh, you know, apparently he's in charge of everything, which, you know, as we've seen, that does seem to be how legislatures work in this country. And it's dead on arrival. You know, it's just not going to be considered. Uh, the new Hartford Republican, who is, it's, the article goes on to say, who is involved in a family farm operation. Well, hold, hold the phone. <laughs> what does that mean? Apparently, he's not involved. So he's on the other side. He's not involved in a factory farm operation, but a family farm operation. Well, that made me curious. And uh, I couldn't find any evidence that he actually, uh, his father's farm, which is the one he's quote unquote involved in. It is owned by a family, as are many, many factory farms. <laughs> like people who own factory farms have families. They're, these aren't different categories of farms, uh, even though there does seem to be some uh, hope of uh, different. The, the industry has always tried to pretend that if, if a family's involved, it's not a factory farm. His farm, I didn't find any evidence that there were animals raised there. However, it's 1,700 acres of corn and soybeans, which, of course, are sold to factory farms. Like, that's the business. You know, aside um, from everything else, he does seem to have a little bit of a conflict of interest here. He said calling for a moratorium is not the way to start a conversation about large-scale farm operations. If you're going to approach this from a standpoint of a moratorium, you're never going to have a sit-down conversation that can be a real, what are some issues that need to be addressed? Uh, yeah, and there's a real possibility that that's we're, we're really going to have that conversation anyway. And you know what the issues are that need to be addressed is that factory farms have to go. That's the issue. So this, sh this should be interesting watching this play out. As I said, I don't think Iowa is the only place where this is being tried. All right, from our, from our friends over at Plant Based News, they were reporting on an article. And the name of their article is, Are Vegan Kids at Risk of Having a, quote, Severe of having severe vitamin deficiencies. And the article that they're discussing is from some, some outfit called the EFA News, the European Food Agency News. And it looks very serious and scientific. Obviously, it's not. So apparently, they did a study. This is a University, university of Helsinki study. And they looked at, wait for it, 
40 children, of which six of them were vegan. And from this, they are, they are uh, writing articles telling people that vegan kids are at risk of having severe vitamin deficiencies. Not only was it a ridiculously small sample, but of course, it didn't even show that. Um, it did show that these six had lower vitamin A and D levels than the meat eaters. However, they were not so low as to be deficient. So who cares? Who cares? And uh, they found that vegan children had a higher intake of ALA, which is an omega-3 fat found in plant foods, but lower intakes of EPA and DHA, which are found in animal foods. So, of course, they didn't have them. The question, you know, of course, what happens is that the body can convert ALA, the vegan omega-3 fat, into EPA and DHA. And, you know, the science is still not completely clear on numbers there, but, you know, the fact that they didn't have the stuff found in fish in their bodies doesn't seem like really evidence for vegan parents to be horrified. Like, what? They also found that there was no difference between the vegan and meat-eating children for vitamin B12, zinc, iodine, or iron. They did find that the vegan children had higher levels of folate. Well, I always thought that was a good thing, and it usually is considered a good thing according to this article. But according to these authors, high folate is not necessarily good in the presence of low B12. Well, regardless of whether that's true, they just said their, v their B12 was fine. So <laughs> who cares? Oh, my God. I'm vegan parents. I sympathize with you. Ah, it's hard to get through all of this stuff with all of this misinformation out there. And that's it for this week's Rising Anxieties. Well, that's it for this week's show. As always, if you like the podcast and you're able in these difficult times, you can support us by joining our flock at ourhenhouse.org slash donate for $10 a month or $100 a year. Or you can make whatever donation you're comfortable with. Another great way to support us is to leave a fabulous review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to podcasts or like us on Facebook. You could also leave us a review there or follow us on Twitter or Instagram at at Our Hen House. If you shop on Amazon, you can use Amazon Smile using Our Hen House as your favorite charity. And of course, tell your friends about us. If you're one of our listeners who already supports us, thank you so much. And thank you to my co-host, Marianne Sullivan, and to Jen Riley for her work in producing this podcast, and to composer Michael Heron for the music. Thanks to Podcast Haven for their work editing this podcast, and to our production assistant, Jocelyn Martinez. We will be back next week with a brand new show, so don't forget to subscribe in Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're a Flock member, remember to check your email or the Flock Facebook group on Tuesday for your bonus content and join us on Fridays for Flock Fridays, where we do some really cool Zooms that you'll want to join. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm Jasmine Singer, and be safe out there. Social distance, stay home, wash your hands, and listen to podcasts. <laughs>